Blog Talk Radio. Welcome you to Africa on the Move. As the host of Africa, we welcome you to this program and we hope to share with you information that will encourage you, inspire you to a high level of concrete activity as you work towards trying to help liberate your people from the various forms of oppression and to help the great humanity from its various forms of oppression. We welcome you to Africa Go on the Move, and like always, our theme for today is Protecting, Protecting, and Use of Power, Part 3. We will talk about this, this, this theme as well as give you an update on what's going on in our world and the community. And like always, when we talk about Africa on the move, we know that we always get started with our party by introducing our political panelists and analysts for the day. We first will start with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, 
What happened to Africa, Mo? Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Uh, and revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, Abdetivist Pan-Africanism, the Total Liberation and Unification of Africa under Scientific Socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Finally, Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamasi Mushoki. I'm with African Awareness. And I'm all about institution building. Now, before I get into the question in terms of the importance of institution building, uh, I'd like to just uh, give my uh, uh, respect to a couple of individuals. First, uh, Representative Omar, Dion Omar out of Minnesota, in terms of her masterful uh, questioning of the, former, the, the current uh, war criminal, Ellie Abrams, and to expose the underbelly of the imperialist state. And secondly, to give shout out to Sister Alexandra Casio Cortez in terms of her exposure, in terms of the kind of um, <clears throat> malfeasance that takes place in the White House. Recently, there was a situation where lobbyists, very wealthy lobbyists, using the homeless people to keep their, place, their spot in the line so they can get into these various meetings. And this kind of abuse of the homeless people is, 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 is unfoundable. But unfortunately, this is the mindset of so many people in power that, in fact, that they, they, so many people who are homeless are simply useless, and that's unfortunate because it pretty much sets the, the, tone, the, the tone of entire societies. So it's very, very unfortunate that this kind of mindset exists. But in terms of the importance of institutions, Brother Africa, uh, you know, back in 2017, the Trump administration froze all funding to homeland security for countering violent extremism. Now, the reason why this is so important is because when we look at the United States in terms of extremism, between the years of 2017 and 2018, all extremism was tied to either the right wing or white supremacy. So clearly, uh, you know, this defunding of this, 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 this apparatus, you know, to keep uh, extremism in check, uh, is being defunded. And the fact that they're defunded, there's a lot in terms of uh, what uh, Trump is really all about. My question in terms of when we talk about the points of institutions, we have to ask yourself the question is, by Trump doing this, by him defunding these programs to watch these extremists, the question becomes, does he have any respect for humanity? Or does he have any respect for civil rights? What implications does that have for the African community? Well, we need institutions to better clarify those questions, because if we don't clarify, if we don't um, bring into focus, sharp focus, uh, these questions, then we're doing ourselves a great disservice as we go on in a side inevitably uh, is bound um, is to self-destruct. So we need institutions to clarify and to actually look at the situation as it currently exists to ask itself, what can we do in terms of ruining the situation? So having said that, Brother Africa, I just want to again thank you for having me and uh, peace. Thank you, Brother Haki. We now would like to welcome Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I often finish up my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers help their children. 
And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show, brother. Africa. No problem. Exactly. We welcome our listening audience. Like always, we're going to start off with our segment. Before we follow up with our first segment, what's going on in your world and the community, we will be remiss if we don't say hello and and continue to send our prayers and our well-being to our sister, Sister Hattie. She's still uh, making a recovery. Um, we wish her and her family well. We hope that sometime soon that she'll be able to come back and join us. So we would just like to give a shout-out to our dear Sister Hattie. We miss you. Well, panelists, as you know, there are so many things going on um, right now. What we want to do is uh, go into our first segment, what's going on in your world and the community. We'll start out with you first today, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, several things. Um, uh, let's see. To start with, um uh, let's see. Uh, Congress did uh, reach an agreement on on a budget for the U.S. government, and um, and uh, and uh, as a consequence of that, uh, Donald Trump declared a state of emergency in order because uh, Congress did not allocate the funds that he wanted to build that border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. And uh, what people don't realize, that this gives him broad emergency powers to uh, infringe upon the civil and human rights of anybody he doesn't like. Uh, So uh, people need to pay very serious attention to the ramifications of this declaration of a state of emergency. Also, um, Ilan Omar uh got criticized for being anti Semitic because she pointed out in a tweet that Congress is dominated by the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee. And uh any time uh people uh speak up or criticize Zionism or Israel, they labeled anti Semitic. And of course this is an incorrect assertion but because of Zionist control of the media, uh, they get to, uh, to, to define who is or who is not anti-Semitic. They abrogate that privilege for themselves. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. We'd like to come back to you later on before we lead the segment. Let's talk a little bit about the recent signing of this executive order, state of emergency, and what that really means. But before we come back to you, let's go ahead and continue moving forward with Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, what's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, there is a uh, group out of Germany that does a corruption uh, perception index, and it's very, very interesting. Uh, essentially what it does, it measures corruption in all the countries in the world. And they talk about the importance in terms of checks and balances in terms of limiting corruption. Surprised, well, not really surprisingly, but uh, one of the things that happened in terms of this uh, study is the U.S. dropped from 75 to 71. So in other words, the further up the chain you are, the more you're doing in terms of combating corruption. The further down, you're, uh, you're actually complicit in terms of corruption. So the mere fact that you're going from 75 to 71 in less than a year's time varies in terms of level of corruption. And certainly when you look at in terms of Trump's uh, national emergency directive, clearly this is a, this is a form of corruption because it has no basis in terms of uh, constitutional law. 
So interestingly enough, so when we talk about corruption and we talk about people not having any recourse in terms of being, you know, um, uh, poo-pooed upon, then we understand that it's fundamentally a function of corruption. And this is what we have to understand in society. So one of the things uh, that we're very, very clear, increasingly we're very, very clear on, that America is, in fact, one of the most corrupt places in the world. Good to know that people around the world uh, realize that uh, concretely. Okay. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Can you hear us, Brother Moses? Yeah, there's a call by um, War Can't Wait for Into the Streets on Monday. Uh, to protest the situation here, this so-called human crisis, um, and uh, and uh, the, um, refuse fascism as a and protest the growing mode of fascism. This is this is the protest Monday, uh, uh, President's Day, uh, nationwide, and so you should look to see in your various communities if, if there's a. Uh, uh, a demonstration plan. Um, this is a direct result of the so-called state of emergency and the things that have been going on in in uh, the U.S. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Brother Moses. Hey, panelists, uh, well, actually, this, if we can talk just a little bit about the recent decision of Donald Trump in terms of his announcement of a calling for a state of emergency. And as Brother Anthony alluded to earlier, this particular call for a state of emergency may have and will have broader implications on the people here as well as the world. Now, in terms of calling a state of emergency, I was really wondering, was this call really act geared more towards this issue of the border crisis or so-called crisis, or are there some bigger schemes of things the U.S. Uh, putting in motion that will be taking place maybe very soon, for example, i.e., the invasion of Venezuela? What do y'all make of that possibility of in the next days or weeks, you will see maybe an invasion against Venezuela by the U.S.? And with the state of emergency being in, in order, what kind of impact would that have on the everyday citizens, and particularly African people in this border, here as well as throughout the world? So I'd like to hear some feedback in terms of that possibility, panelists. What do y'all think? I think they are corrected, even though I think the driving force is to build that border uh, that that border wall between Mexico and the U.S. to keep the indigenous people from Central and South America from migrating to the U.S. in search of a better life, or so they believe. And uh, and uh, I think uh, you know the U.S. does intend to in- intervene militarily. In Venezuela, if uh, political and economic pressure doesn't work, which it doesn't seem to, and um, 
and uh, they and uh, they they have probably tried to do militarily what they haven't been able to do by other means up to this point. And uh, Maduro has the overwhelming uh, support of the uh, Venezuelan masses, and uh, as well as the armed forces. So, uh, so, 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 so the the political and economic pressure is not is not having the desired effect. Otherwise, the the the, the coup would have been a, a fait accompli at this point, and it's not. So I think they're connected, as you point out, Brother Africa. I think at this this you know state of emergency um, decree has more to do with the importance in terms of um, creating imperial presidency. I think for a long time the right wing, the very powerful forces in the U.S., have been content on a president that essentially act as though like a king, and so therefore they 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 desire to see a presidency you know without checks and balances, a president who's true. Who truly free, who's whatever he or she wants to do, you know, uh, without any response from Congress. So I think it has a lot to do with that. And of course, you're absolutely correct. The implications in terms in terms of that is one of the things is that, you know, when, when we talk about Venezuela in particular, now one of the things is that when we talk about the deterioration of the economic system, that's a very very real phenomenon. It's not just something that we're making up. It's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. It's in fact something that's ever happening. So all economic indicators are clear on that point that the economy is heading for a great decline. And because they understand that the necessity in terms of invading in Venezuela access to its gold, its box right, and other value minerals becomes very, very, very important because one of the things really has value above all others is wealth. And certainly uh, they had a conference recently in Canada in which Canada attempted to block all journalists from meeting. We call the, the, the Lima Group. And essentially what they're doing, they do, the corrupt individuals in Central and South America, along with the Western, with the Western elites, so, so-called Western elites, are actually determining how they're going to invite up Venezuela in terms of how they're going to enrich themselves. So clearly having the president to have the power to unilaterally, you know, to invade militarily, you know, within checks and balances, is preferable for those in positions of power. But keep in mind, one of the ironies of the thing, Brother Africa, we had to keep in mind, is that historically when you talk, to, when you talk about, you know, uh, Intervention, military intervention, and when you talk about spending, that is the domain of the Congress. We have to ask ourselves, what is wrong with the Congress that refused to fight, you know, for its own its own territory? Why does it continue to capitulate? Why does it give in whatever Trump does? And the problem is that when you create the president, when you allow him to get in with, with these kind of acts, these kind of deceptions, when he when he gets away with it, it means that the next president that comes along can be even more um, blatant. In terms of you know, violation of the Constitution and or human rights, so clearly you know the implications are broad. And that and, and uh, one other thing I should add also, when we talk about specifically, when we talk about the African community, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind when we talk about the state of emergency, we got to keep in mind that African people are, as far as the power structure is concerned, is the number one adversary. It doesn't matter what we don't do anything. It really doesn't matter. So you can you can be complacent as you want to be, you can be pliable as you want to be. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Because from a political point of view, they need scapegoats. They need someone to justify the inequities of the society. Historically, it's always been African people to take the blame for the viciousness of the system, and that's going to continue to be such. So with an imperial president, with a president with a tremendous amount of power, that process can only be accelerated. So this is a real danger that we're confronted when you start talking about the president with an immense amount of power. So clearly, uh, the right wing is in, in its lockstop 
lockstep with in terms of what's going on. So no one should be surprised, you know, that uh, he would he would do that because it's simply a test to see if there's any type of resistance um, from um, from the from the Congress in terms of preventing you know such moves from taking place. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Any thoughts on any thoughts on this issue, Brother Moses? That's fine. Congress is definitely considering to to stop. Uh, it should be moved to impeachment. And uh, I think you know, like Theresa Lamey's slope is sliding into fascism and more and more authoritarian rule. And uh, you know, right now it's, it's he's talking about the wall. And uh, but you know, tomorrow it may be you know Venezuela and uh, and uh, and Cuba and uh, the so-called axes of evil or whatever he called it uh, of these you know these countries, socialist-leaning countries that uh, he despises, and uh, in the State of the Union dress, he definitely. You know, said it was not going to be any socialism in the U.S. today, and so he obviously is is, is uh, determined to to squash any progressive movement, and uh, this this national emergency fits right into that that uh, that uh, possibility of him using these powers to squash any protest, any demonstration any opposition to his will. And this is a very, very dangerous situation we face. And, and uh, hopefully, you know, we will be in the streets and, and protesting and and, uh, and try to counter this movement. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Yeah, interestingly, interestingly, interestingly enough, Brother Moses, um, he referred to uh, Venezuela, Cuba, in Nicaragua as the troika of terrorism. It's very, very interesting when you talk about this question in terms of terrorism. The U.S., you know, hypocritically, uh, refuses to see the kind of terror not only does it commit, you know, against the against the world, but the terrorism commit against its own people within its own borders. So it's very, very ironic that they can continue to do this. The mere fact that there's even more of an outcry in America in terms of just the sheer hypocrisy of it all speaks values in terms of just how ill-informed or how complacent the populace is. That we, as you alluded to, we can ill afford to be complacent. That we must begin to understand the nature of the threat. And, in, and when we think about the gilet jaune, you know, the yellow vest in France, in terms of the value standard they're taking, in terms of creating a just society, you know, for its people, uh, why isn't that we're not duplicating that movement here in America? You know, if they can do that in France, then we certainly should have, you know, people in America out in the streets demanding reform, not reform, but revolution, in terms of bringing about fundamental uh, restructuring of these institutions which are geared toward the oppression of its people, not only in America, but throughout the world. So clearly, you know, we cannot afford to be complacent. And with a president with the kind of power that this madman has, uh, you're right, it doesn't bode well for humanity. You know, you know, Panis, it's really interesting. Um, 20, 30 years ago, one way we use an argument from the capitalist perspective is that they need walls because it stimulates the economy. But they have even admitted recently, you know, for several years now, at this stage of the development of capitalism, walls no longer directly have an impact or benefit on economies. 
basically they are having wars where the only people where these wars are benefiting is just the rich and the wealthy. It's going to really trickle down to have an overall impact on the well-being of the people. And we often say that wars are fought on behalf of the rich and the wealthy. Because it's not the poor that benefit from the wars. So therefore, I'm just I'm just curious in terms of um, why people continue to allow to let them put them in positions to fight wars where even they admit it that we're not have no benef- benefits to you nor your community, only to a handful of people and then rich and wealthy. I think that problem occurs because, uh, let's see, there is a certain buzzword, security. And uh, when politicians use that, it seems like uh, people are gullible enough to fall for anything as long as it's done in the name of security. And uh, and uh, people are in, ge- are in ge- genuine fear of any change in the in the way of life, as miserable as it might be for the masses of the people. And I uh, think uh, in terms of this issue of corruption, there are uprisings breaking out in Haiti and the Dominican Republic tonight because of the decisions of, that the political leadership took to side with the U.S., in terms of his effort to isolate Venezuela. And Venezuela, um, you know, just for, for, for those who might not be aware, had, um, had created a special program to aid various countries in the Caribbean and Central America uh, that were struggling to pay for, for the oil they were importing from Venezuela. And uh, the short of it is that... Um, that this amounted to billions of dollars in aid to the Dominican Republic and Haiti, which was squandered by the current political leadership in those two countries. And people are out in the streets tonight because of that. And uh, bear in mind that, um, that the crisis of Africans in these two countries is much more severe than inside the U.S., uh, because uh, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, there's a lot of starvation and, and uh, tremendous impoverishment, and uh, and uh, and there's no, uh, and that they don't have the mechanisms to escape from that reality that uh, that that Africans in wealthy capitalist countries like the U.S. and Canada do. So people don't see that. And I think that's a major issue. And um, just as a note, uh, bear in mind that Hitler uh, came to power or, or, or usurped power by declaring a state of emergency. And it ultimately became permanent. So this is a very decent, uh, dangerous, uh, you know, road uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, that the U.S. is heading. I think one answer your question, Brother Africa. I think that to a large extent, people join the military out of conscription. I mean, what happens is the government creates a situation where there's no jobs, which means that people, in terms of just survival, are compared to go to the military because at least all of them pay. 
But keep in mind, though, even though that attempt at conscription uh, is not uh, foolproof, in fact, the overwhelming number of African youth refuse to go to the military, and they rather just tough it in the street rather than go to the military because they got the message that going to the military and dying, you know, to make a few people rich is something is something that they simply don't want to be a part of. So clearly, the kind of desperate, the, the army is feeling a tremendous amount of desperation. So as a consequence, what happens is that you find even the sporting events is they also they're also um, sponsored by the military. They even talk a point point now where they even uh, lower their their, uh, their requirements in terms of military. They're so desperate for bodies to be part of the military, uh, and one of the things that the ruling class has done is to spend more money in terms of um, you know uh, all kinds of sophisticated gadgetry, uh, technology in terms of fighting wars. Because simply because increasingly people are not going to the military, even though they're poor and jobless, uh, it, it makes it very difficult for the ruling class to conduct a war. And the question in terms of when you talk about in terms of, you know, wealth or what kind of wealth is being generated, you know, from, 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 arm, from arm expenditures, you're absolutely correct. Uh, when you talk about the expenditures toward military weaponry, it does nothing in terms of all the economy because what happens is essentially it goes to a few corporations who then, and, and then, who then invest, you know, to make more wealth for themselves. It doesn't fizzle through the economy, so it doesn't stimulate the economy when I owe it. It only makes a few people more increasingly more wealthy. Uh, so one of the things that, that, that has to happen in the context of capitalism is that historically um, the thing was that, you know, during the FDR administration, one of the things that they did, they realized the importance in terms of stimulating the economy. In order to do that, they understood that money had to flow through the economy in order for it to expand. But that was only a tactical measure. They didn't do it because they really wanted to do it. They did it simply because at that point in time, if they didn't do it, the revolution was on the way. And so therefore they did it out of convenience, uh, out of expediency. Uh, so clearly right now in this part, of, as you alluded to, Brother African, we talk about the development of capitalism at this point. Clearly, you know, it does nothing in terms of stimulating the economy, not one iota. Even when you talk about something like tax breaks for the wealthy, it does nothing in terms of stimulating the economy. It's just simply mean that a, a fewer and fewer people are getting wealthier and wealthier. So clearly uh, the implications, you know, for, for war is not good for anybody. And it's good to see that the masses of African youth and increasingly even young white males are beginning to realize, you know, that going to war to make a few people wealthy is not, is not a formula that they subscribe to. You know, um, panelists, there was some interesting points or, or, or caveats I think uh, Donald Trump made in conjunction with his declaration of the state, making the state of declaring the state of emergency. One of the things he alluded to was that um, he got approval from the military to um, use resources that they allocated to them to do that to divert their money to help build his wall. But also he alluded to that they still have additional surplus of military hardware equipment in which he will be sending to local um, local police offices or departments, local police departments, so they can better control and deal with the people. And I'm saying all of this is in conjunction to knowing all the time that they are preparing for some kind of mass resistance inside of the border of the United States. And they're going to uh, unleash local police um, departments on the people. And they're going to use 
equipment that you will find on on, on military in, equipment that people use when you talk about going to military battles with foreign nations. So it seems very clear to me, if you listen real closely to them, they are making a calculated risk that no matter what they do, no matter what they do, they are not fearful in terms of not being able to control the people. Uh, whether you talk about it politically or whether you talk about it militarily, they seem to be very confident that they will be able to control any kind of resistance from within this country and to the citizens in this country, and particularly um, African people in those oppressed communities. As you alluded to earlier, we're going to be the first victims of their um, oppression and their terrorist behavior. And I think for American citizens who are listening to this program, you need to ask yourself, once they unleash local police departments from around the country in the inner cities, what would you do? How would you deal with that? Because I also ask the question, you know, in every city there, they have these, what you call the little police um, districts. They've been in existence for 20 years, but they've never they just been in existence for 20 years in various communities. But basically, it being very low-key and very solidly used, but being there for 20 years. And I used to always ask myself, why are this country developing local police offices in various districts throughout these inner cities and not using them as of yet? And I think that, you know, all of this is about to come fruition. You now will see where maybe some of the first stops to try to squife to try to swallow resistance would take place by incarcerating people in these little local um, police districts, offices that they have created in various districts throughout these inner cities. Um, Palace, from the tea leaves, what you have seen so far, does that make sense to y'all? Yes, it does. And um and uh thing and uh thing about it though, I think uh for years uh let's see, the US has been sending police, various police, not not necessarily all of them, but some police to uh uh the uh to to Israel for training. And uh, and uh, and and they get trained in terms of how of how to uh, you, you know uh, restrain and kill people, and I think and uh, so far the brunt of this violence against the people has been borne by the Africans and uh, and the so-called uh, Latino population, and uh, it's going to get worse. And uh, and I think and I think. That people that ha- that 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 are opposed uh, to, to to Trump uh, in particular and capitalism in general are gonna are gonna run into serious problems, which is why it's critical that we get organized as a people, because the enemy is organizing its forces. 
Yeah, well, you know, one of the things is that, you know, and I think we've been doing a pretty good job in terms of trying to call attention to the fact that the economy is in disarray. And, uh, of course, there's those of us who don't want to hear that. And so when we look at something like it's simplistic as unemployment, and we understand unemployment is symptomatic of much more systemic problems. And uh, so anytime you have a situation where you continually, consciously, ensure that fewer and fewer people have access to all the, all the wealth, and clearly the opportunities in terms of expansion, the creation of jobs that people simply is not a priority, which means that people simply don't have work. And increasingly, the number of people who have work, the number continues to increase. It doesn't decrease. Uh, so clearly we got some structural problems in terms of capitalism. Uh, and one of the things that we very, very clear on that the ruling class understands it fundamentally. So when you talk about these large tax cuts for the wealthy people, they understand that they're going to get theirs before the economy does collapse. And they, 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 they are no more illusions. So when corporations buy back their own stock in terms of, you know, guiding up the value of their stock to give themselves, you know, large increases in terms of wages or to pay off their flunkies, you know, hire up, up in the corporation or even their board members. They understand the name of the game. Unfortunately, what happens is that the masses of people don't understand the name of the game. We're told that everything is fine, that, in fact, if you want to work, all you do is start there and you find a job and it's not a problem. Of course, for many out there who've been searching for work, they understand uh, that's not a reality. In fact, when you look at statistically, when you look at in terms of even the uh, Commerce Department, in terms of how it defines unemployment, they have two, 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 measure, two, two instruments they use in terms of measuring unemployment, one U6 and other U3. One, of course, measures true unemployment. The other doesn't measure uh, true unemployment. So clearly, the one that the government prefers to use is that measure, U6, which doesn't measure true unemployment. So it gives the impression that, in fact, unemployment is not an issue. Everything is fine. But, of course, that serves, that serves the, the, the narrative of those in power because it's all about the power and nothing else. And so we talk about the proliferation in terms of this conversion between the police and the military. You're right. It's not by chance. It's all by design, and, and one of the things that you have to understand is that when we talk about um, when we talk about National Defense Authorization Act, and you talk about this drive in terms of demonizing, you know, black identity extremists, it's part of a strategy, and that's what we have to understand. This is all part of a strategy. It's not make believe. All we have to do is listen to what they're saying, and then we can piece together what they're doing. It's not very complex. All you have to do is listen to what they're saying. They're telling you. They're telling you that we're going to incarcerate you. We're going to turn a large number of African people. That we're going to bulldoze. I mean, we can simply kill a large number of American people in order to maintain power. They're telling you that. But as Brother Anthony said, now is the time if you can organize. Then certainly it's much easier to organize now and create institutions that you need to come for those very horrific days to come, as opposed to waiting to the point where they actually clamp down. And then you try to do it, then it becomes extremely much more difficult in order to do. So we're at a we're at a crossroads in the society. No question about it. Society generally sort of felt crossroads, but African people specifically at a crossroads. And I'm not just talking about Africans in America, but I'm talking about Africans on the African continent. So we shouldn't deceive ourselves into believing, you know, that somehow, you know, that things are going to be all right, that somehow uh, the creator is going to solve our problems. No, the creator endowed us with the ability to think. If we don't want to use that ability to think, and we want to acquiesce to the system and pretend like it's all good, that it's more important to be, quote, unquote, American than to be a human, then you pay the, we pay the price for such such kind of thinking. So I think that we got to be very, very aware, very, very concerned about the changes that are taking place. And you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. Everything they do, they, they're sending you the signals. They're telling you what they're going to do. Now, if you don't hear the signals and you just want, if you just want to be, uh, you just want to pretend that it's not an issue, that it doesn't concern you, that's fine. You know what? 
that, that we will be there to reckoning, and you will have to, at some point, you're going to have to deal with one way or the other. So there's no getting around that. That's just human history. You know, Brother Anthony, you alluded to earlier in uh, one of your remarks about how how um, U.S. along with other Western nations, Europe, Canada, Israel, etc., talking about how they're going to plan and carve up the resources of Venezuela. That made me think about historically in the past how they have historically done that to African people. You know, made me think about the agreement where Europe made during the Berlin Conference, 1884-85, how they came together and said how they can carve up Africa and control its resources, its people. <clears throat> and what I'm saying today and I like to address the panelists as a pan Africanist, one who believe and recognize Africa as a home, we are all African people, no matter where we may have been born at. Venezuela also has established a foreign policy where they have opened up many missions in Africa and looking at working with African nations where they can work together and help develop each other economically and politically. I'm saying this because when we look at this issue of if there's an invasion against Venezuela, I think we need to put it in this proper context in terms of it's not just an invasion against the people in Venezuela, even though we know that the people in Venezuela are made up of predominantly African and indigenous people, but also an invasion against African people around the world. So we also, too, have a stake in this battle. And the issue becomes... There must be some kind of educational program takes place in African countries and communities on our relationships to the brothers and sisters in Venezuela and what they mean to us in the long run. Because we understand Europe has a foreign policy that if you attack one of them, they all work in collusion and support each other. So even if the division takes place, we can't just even look at it in the context of just the U.S. invasion. Canada, Israel, Western European countries is also part of this equation. So my question to the panelists is, what is the responsibility of other African nations, African people, outside of U.S. in terms of looking at this possibility of invasion against Venezuela? Why should they support the brothers and sisters in Venezuela, panelists? Uh, because an attack on on Africans uh, anywhere is an attack on all Africans, in a sense. And uh, oh, and and in the years since uh, since Venezuela started its revolution, it has provided support for Africans throughout the world. And uh, you know, with programs and also trying to encourage integration among uh, the various countries in Central, South uh, uh, America, and the Caribbean to counter uh, the domination by uh, the U.S. and Canada. And, uh, and what's at stake is, um, is our right to self-determination. Uh, the Venezuelans are struggling for the right to define them for themselves what government is best for them, what, what, you know, who should be in their leadership. And as I alluded to earlier, 
there are some Africans in the, in the Dominican and uh, Republican Haiti that are reacting to their leadership's betrayal of uh, of uh, Venezuela, but but before the uh, the forces of world imperialism, and uh, and uh, you know, and uh, in addition, it's not uh, not only uh, the yellow vests in France that are up in arms, but also uh, you know, peep their uprisings occurring in Zimbabwe, uh, the Sudan, and uh, Cameroon, mm-hmm. and the people are fighting against corruption. Uh, and I think, and uh, you know, corruption and oppression in general. And what is happening is that as imperialism tries to uh, tighten its repression, the people are getting increasingly fed up and fighting. And what what what, what needs to take place is a higher level of organization. Most of our people are are, are proceeding in a, in a in a you know in a disorganized and spontaneous fashion. Spontaneous spontaneity is good, but it's not sufficient. What we need is permanent organization, and that's what Pan Africanists such as Nkrumah, Secretary, uh, uh, and Kwametri have been calling for for uh, for years. Well, you know, I, I think that um, you know. You know, just to just to be simplistic about it all. You know, one of the things you know we we often talk about, we talk about until there's a a, 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 a strong united uh, socialist Africa, no African world will be truly free, and that's precisely what it is. And I think what we have to understand is that when we talk about U.S. imperialism, we understand there's a whole question in terms of American exceptionalism is nothing more than the right in terms of the U.S. to dominate the resources of people of color throughout the world, in particular African people. And so, therefore, when we talk about these kind of policies, like in terms of the the potential intervention intervention of Venezuela, clearly uh, we talk about a people of color. And so, therefore, their their rights, um, respect for these people, uh, are, doesn't exist simply because you, what we're talking about, as far as you're concerned, you're talking about African and, and or other you know, other colored people. And so, therefore, it's not a priority. What is a priority for the West is attainment of those resources, and that's all it's all about. And so, unless we get together, you know, and, and form a, a you know a organization to understand the importance in terms of the collective understanding of what we're up against, then what happens is they essentially, you know, divide and conquer us, and that's what they've been doing for a long, long time. You know, recently um, uh, Macron, as though he don't have enough problems back in France, went to uh, Chad to save the corrupt president Debe in Chad. Well, interesting enough, this corrupt fellow's been in power for 30 years, and you look at the material conditions of the Chadians or the people in Chad, it's, 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 it's atrocious. Uh, clearly, so the focus for him is not in terms of, you know, uh, the, the, folk, the, the importance of, you know, you know uh, the empowerment of his people. What's important for him is to maintain power. And France is willing to assist him in maintaining power because it's in France's interest to make sure you know, that Chad remains undeveloped, destabilized, and poor, which means it makes it easier for the France government and otherwise the governments to exploit the Chadians in terms of their resources. Unfortunately, when we talk about that phenomenon, and we can exclude the fact that throughout the continent, you get a lot of people, you know, who are predisposed, uh, you know, um, to, uh, to lionize the West, who see the West as, their, as somehow their friend. 
not understand historically the West has never been your friend. And when you talk about the underdevelopment or the desegregation of Africa, then clearly it goes right back to the West. And you're absolutely right, Brother Africa. When we talk about desegregation processes, we're not just talking about the United States. We're talking about all of them, all of them. Every last one of them are complicitous in terms of the destabilization of Africa and the countries of color around the world. So clearly we have we got a lot of work to do in terms of understanding that fundamental reality. But first and foremost, we have to educate ourselves in terms of exactly what's going on and understand the implications as in our lives, particularly when it is applied to um, African people you know, throughout the world. You know, before we talk about our theme, which is protecting, projecting, and the use of power, panelists, one of the things about the state of emergency and this building of this wall among the southern border of the United States against Mexico, I would like to just call to your attention that, you know, just this question of corruption, you know, this, you know, corruption inside the U.S., when you look at how it's practiced, it's very slick, very sophisticated. Now, you can use laws and policies. They use laws and policies all the time to steal and take money. I want to ask each one of y'all one fundamental question in the listening world. He is calling for additional $8.1 billion. They said they have already advocated $1.4 billion. He called for additional $7.4 billion, totaling like $8.4 total, billions of dollars to build this wall. My question is, when we talk about contractors and who would get to work, that's another way of stealing money. Who would benefit? Who would get all this money, $8.4 billion panelists? And what would be these contractors, these individual relationships to this administration? How much of this money would trigger down to the African community, if any? Uh, given uh, historic, uh, recent history, uh, little to none will trickle down to the African community. I think that I think, and uh, you know, and a lot of the a lot of the, the work of building this wall would, would be outsourced to the you know usual contractors like uh, Halliburton, General Dynamics, et cetera. And uh, and uh, very and it it will go to the ruling bourgeoisie as it usually does, and uh, very little what you know what would trickle down, and the so the impact on the African community would be no, uh, you know economically, it may it may create uh, some jobs. Uh, let's see in that in that border region temporarily, but uh, but you know but the the thing is uh, it, it it will further enrich the wealthy at the at the, at, at the expense of the uh, uh, of the uh, suffering masses of people. Yeah, you know when you talk about corruption, uh, Brother Africa, uh, one of the things. When we talk about who the money would go to, well, clearly the money's going to those individuals who are well-connected, and we, we understand that. There, there's no question about that. But the corruption is, is, is a bit more um, – it's not really a bit more um, uh, intricate. Uh, the corruption is out there, but all we have to do is read and understand the nature of the corruption. For, for instance, what's happening right now is that they recently changed the rules, the accounting rules in terms of accounting monies that are spent by the U.S. government. 
no longer do people have to account for any discrepancies they have in terms of, you know, uh, budgets. So when you, for example, you have the office of management and budget who sit there and say, okay, look, at here's, here's the numbers, or even the Pentagon, okay, here's the numbers. Now, let's account for where all these dollars are going. Well, in terms of accounting, then you should be able to account for where all that money is going. Even though historically we understand when we talk about corruption, the Pentagon lost $21 trillion to this date. No one has gone to jail. No one knows where that $21 trillion went to, but it's simply vanished. Now they got a formal process in place in which you don't even have to disclose any kind of uh, discrepancy. So you have a situation where you're trying to balance the books, and you have a situation where uh, you come up um, $3, million, $3 billion short. Doesn't matter because you're not obligated to report, in fact, that, in fact, uh, that you're $3 billion short. In fact, what they mandated was that when you have a shortage, you simply on the books, you take money from some other agency, plug that $3 billion that are missing, and make it appear as though the books are balanced. So this is the kind of corruption you talk about. Much more, it's much more cerebral kind of corruption, but the corruption done in less. And it's not really, I mean, even though people think it's complex, the corruption is not complex at all. All you need to do is to read to find out what they're doing. Because the great thing about, you know, about, about, about them, they're convinced that they can hide the information. But if you look for the information, then, then you know exactly what they're doing. You know, but the corruption is nonetheless exists. But as I alluded to before, Brother Africa, when we talk about corruption, and we talk about the Corruption Perception Index, uh, clearly, you know, uh, when they talk about the fact that the United States decline in terms of stand in terms of corruption, uh, yes, it, 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 it's understood that corruption is very much part of the United States. So when you have that, 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 measure, that, 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 that instrument that measures corruption, that score from 0 to 100, and the United States comes in at 71, then what does that say to you in terms of corruption? Uh, so if people abroad can understand the corruption in America, certainly the people inside America can understand the nature of corruption. So to answer your question in terms of how would that, how would that benefit African people, it won't benefit African people one iota. No, whatsoever. African people, for the for the most part, are not that co- are not that connected, and so it's simply not going to it's not going to it's not going to impact African people one iota. Uh, but well, well Haki, Haki, can I uh-huh. can I stop you? Can I stop you yes. for a second? Yes. What is the value of having so-called African political leadership? What is the value of having so many Africans in the position of so-called authority within the confines? of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. What is the value of having Africans be as legislators if they can't do nothing to bring the bacon back home to our community? If I'm going to be the quickest response would be there is no value to them, Lee. There is no value to them. Uh, they go for what the hell are we running for? Well, Didn't the average brother on the corner will ask the question, why the hell do we continue to vote? Well, we, we, we vote because we think that it makes a difference. Uh, we're taught that if we vote, that it's going to be okay. And you got these, 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 these uh, pimps who tell the people, if you vote for me, I go to office, and I'm, I'm going to do this, do that for you. But, in fact, when they get to office, they become complicitous in what's going on. They won't say a word. They won't even question what's going on. You talk about the situation in Venezuela in terms of the kind of illegal, the criminality uh, of the U.S. government in terms of uh, what is doing the stabilization of Venezuela. And not a one African, except these three women, these three women, uh, Omar, uh, uh, Cortez, and um, um, the sister, the sister Rashid uh, Talib. Those are only three out of the whole congressional body who are actually talking about the criminality of it all. Now, 
what's happening? You got these these men and women who've been Pelosi and in, in, in her and her ilk, who's been in, in in power for you know you know fifteen twenty years. What what prevents them in terms of actually you know uh, um, um, talking about the kind of uh, wholesale corruption, the whole kind of the criminality that's taking place in terms of uh, these 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 processes coming out of Washington D.C. Why they don't? You ask simply about African people. Why the African Congress people and the one African senator, they're simply they they invested in this process. They invested in the system, and so for in order for them to be invested in the system, they can't oppose the system. So their interest is not the interest of the people who represent them, who send them to to office in the first place. Their interest is to further their pockets, and that's what they do. In order that in order to benefit financially, you have to shut up and play ball. So the question you ask, what benefit are they to African people? There's zero benefit to African people, no benefit to African people, and that's the whole reality. I've always maintained that for African people, to, 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 what is important is organization outside of those structures uh, in which we, 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 we move to do those kind of things that truly empower us. We can't do it within the confines of the Democratic and or Republican Party. It's simply structurally impossible to achieve. And, you know, and, and people talk about how Barack Obama was a great achievement in terms of you know, uh, the electoral process. Well, Barack Obama made a statement that when they asked him, say, all these great things you promised when you were running for president, why do you implement any of those promises? Well, Barack Obama's position was very clear. Well, if I try to implement what I promised, these people kill me. I'm not going to do that. Your life's not that valuable to me that I'm willing to sacrifice my life so you can have a better life. I'm not going to do that. I'm a politician, damn it, not a revolutionary. I ain't not going to die from a principle. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, there's too much money to be made. So clearly they have they serve no purpose in terms of interests of African people. So you so you know, I don't know another way to put that, but that's my view on that, Brother Africa. Yeah. Well, I raised the question, Brother Moses. I raised the question, Brother Anthony. What does it mean to be an African say you're a Democrat or you're African say you're a Republican? Or even if you're African say you're American, what does that really mean? Give us some context. What does that mean today? Brother Moses and Brother Anthony, from your perspective, it means that you're a puppet, basically. Go ahead, Brother Moses. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's correct. You're a puppet. Basically, you know, the 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 system is set up to maintain itself, and uh, there is there is uh, there is no play in the game to win the game. Corruption and more and more complicity with the system, and so you know. But we have to, you know, we have to, as Anthony keeps alluding to, we have to get be organized, and uh, and that's the bottom line. Thank you. I would add that what that what what is necessary. And the mistake that we made is that we that is that we're trying to play the game by the rules of the capitalists, and a cap, and and that has historically worked against uh, the masters of uh, of our people historically. And the problem that we run into, as Kwame Ture pointed out, is that we don't go into these organizations with our own programs. And that takes organization, and we need to form our own independent political organizations. 
And that's the only way we can have organization in which our interests are primary. And uh, the primary interest of the Democratic Party is to protect the interests of the ruling class, always has been. Uh, people, because their historical memories are short, forget that the Democratic Party was the party of the slaveocracy. So the interests were, uh, 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 they, they never cared anything about the interests of the African masses. And those uh, that that do participate in this charade, they're in it for their own selfish interests. They don't care about the masses of the people. Well, panelists, let's just pause for this cause and ask you one and plunder about the issue of what it means to be a Democrat, a Republican, being American in the context of um, and in the of the U.S., History has shown us that if you operate in that compound, you'll find yourself becoming a Buffalo soldier. And I think Brother Marley left us this message to remember since this is African History Month. We'll be right back. Oh, 
we do want to let you know that um, Brother Bob Marley left a message of don't become a Buffalo soldier. Stop letting other people play you while they can pay and you can play. We'd like to welcome you back. You are welcome to join us. You are welcome to join us by calling in at 323-679-0841. Panelists, I'd like to raise this issue with y'all in the context of this question. Are we reliving the same conditions that her Tugman found herself in when she made the statement? She made the statement, I free a thousand slaves. I could have free a thousand more only if if they knew they were slaves. Are we living in the same conditions that confronted her Tugman during the time panelists or not? It's different in some ways. Uh, but the common thread is that um is that our oppression is is primarily ideological. In other words, uh is is our is the way our thinking has been warped by capitalism over the centuries. And uh and it's because of our and it's our is is our think the way we think that keeps us oppressed. Now the manner of that oppression has changed over the decades since uh uh Harriet Tubman lived, but the essence has been been uh been been, been the same to keep us divided and oppressed. Okay. Brother Moses, yeah, well, Brother Hackey, you yeah, just expanded it. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I, 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 I think uh, I think her her statement is still apropos today, uh, and it speaks to in terms of a mindset. Um, we're, certainly, we're not talking about shadow slavery; we're talking about wage slavery. But clearly, when you talk about in terms of the differential in terms of pay, uh, clearly, clearly, this is an ongoing problem in American society. It, it, regardless of the kind of education you have or experience you have, consistently, African people get paid less, and the question becomes so. Why is my labor value less than someone else's labor? Well, it goes back to historical, the historical, <clears throat> historical understanding in terms of what it is to be "quote unquote" a slave, and so therefore, to some extent, we haven't did anything in terms of fighting against that status as a slave. That we simply continue to acquiesce, and so therefore, as a consequence, we continue to be treated as a slave. So clearly, if we understood that in fact that uh, waste labor is tantamount to shadow slavery in the sense that uh, you're being given short in the stick, then it should move us to say, you know what, we got to change this, this this paradigm and create a new paradigm. But it won't come about simply by talking about it. It comes by actually doing things in terms of making it a reality. So I think the mere fact that we don't realize that we are in fact enslaved in this global economy uh, speaks values in terms of our fundamental understanding of who we are. Uh, both in terms of status and historical reference, who we are. So I think that her 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 her, her, her statement is very much relevant to as it was back in the, the uh, late 16th century. Brother Moses, what's your take on the uh, statement? Certainly, um, wage slavery is is the, is the institution we're faced with, and uh, 
you know, there's a many a way slavery, slaver who does, don't recognize that they are way slaves and that this system can be changed and that there is a, a better way. Um, and this is the, you know, so, you know, the, the ignorance and, uh, and, uh, and uh, denial is the same. Uh, we don't recognize that we are slaves and, uh, and to and do something about it. Uh, this is this so you know essentially what she's saying holds true today. You know there, you know this system would, could not continue if there was a consciousness and uh, and you know awareness of the situation. And so you know we we have to be about educating our people. Thank you. You know, apparently, when I read this particular statement, I thought it, it, it parallel uh, um, directly with our reality today. Uh, when you talk about this whole concept of what is a slave and the conditions for a slave, fundamentally, I don't think nothing has changed since the time when we arrived, when she made a statement to to today. And we can say that because if you look at the relationship, matter of fact, when you come to understand the whole development of a capitalist system, capitalism was developed as a another form of slavery. And Kuhlman called it a gentleman uh, man of slavery. It just disguises itself. And it's an excellent book for our listening audience who haven't read it yet. They should read this book called Capitalism and Slavery. And the thesis of the book talks about how the transformation of the economy went into a capitalist economy, but at the same time, it maintained the essence of what it really was, was still maintaining slavery, this whole concept of labor and controlling your labor. So if you look at how we can easily be moved through gentrification wherever they get ready, when you look at this whole question, even in communities we live in, they call our communi- communities a desert community. We have we don't have the basic foods, the basic necessities to eat basic decent foods that will allow us to maintain being the healthy people. When you look at this whole question of controlling your thoughts, controlling your educational institutions, we don't control those, they control those. Even when you look at the issue of controlling and disciplining your families, your children, that is out of our hands, in the hands of other people. When you look at this whole question of when you sat there and designed your future, or how you want your community to look. We have no sense so in that. When you look at all the major things that human beings need to develop and to produce, we don't have no relationship to these means of production. We only consume and we are dictated and we are treated anything less than a human being. So fundamentally, you know, I think the statement is consistent. And we need to wake up and look at this question and do some serious discussion around this question of freedom, this question of liberation, this question of resistance. And when we can do that and have a fair understanding of that, maybe you may be in a better position to, to implement it. For example, panelists, I was looking at this quote by Bob Marley. So we were talking about African Liberation Day when we were talking about having to celebrate these 400 years of so-called, so-called resistance in, in the U.S., I think that we need to look at this question and ask this question about what is freedom. But Bob Marley stated that it's better to die fighting for freedom than to be a prisoner of all the days of your life. 
And I think that's a good description in terms of masses of our people throughout the world. He stated that it's better to die fighting for freedom than to be a prisoner of all the days of your life. Y'all respond to that statement or, or that thought as we talk about this concept of freedom, panelists. Well, being in prison all the days of your life, you will never develop to your fullest human potential. So it's better fighting for freedom, uh, you know, and risk and, and risking your life rather than, than than lead your life as 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 a perpetual slave. And I think and 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 I think he's right. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, because, you know, being enslaved, that means that you, uh, that, that someone de- uh, develops at the expense of your development. And that's, uh, and that's, uh, uh, you know, pure exploitation. And uh, let's see, and, uh, and, and, and the mass of human beings have an instinctive love for freedom. In other words, to the, the ability to develop to their fullest human potential. Yeah, I, I you know, uh, you know, you know, think about it this way. We talk about the min, the misery index, and of course in America, nobody wants to talk about the misery index. But in fact, that's that's when it, the economists actually measure the amount of uh, misery uh, that's. Uh, that's um, uh, in the, in the in society. Uh, one of the things interesting, America has a high misery index. In other words, when you talk about capitalism in terms of this question of freedom, essentially what they do is they equate money with freedom. Because you and I understand money does not equate to freedom. So, for instance, you got people who are making lots and lots of money in the African community, who have to contend with all kinds of dignities during the eight-hour, ten-hour, twelve-hour workday just to keep that money coming in. As a consequence, when they get older, they have to deal with that all the insult they took, and and at some level they have to find some kind of way, some self-destructive way in terms of dealing with it. Often we hear about the fact, and you know, we talk about people using cocaine or alcohol to dull reality. And clearly, what happens is that you kill yourself, you, you kill yourself, and you kill yourself at a slower pace. But nonetheless, you're killing yourself, and that's indicative of the realization that, if not on a conscious level, on sub- subconsciously, people understand. You know that this life, that this so-called freedom that America offers, is a facade. That the kind of misery it imposes upon you makes you feel something worse than a slave. So you get to, at some point, you get to, to realization that you know what, as opposed to being miserable, you know, every day, as opposed to you know being depressed every day, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to stand up. I might have to get a job making less money, or I might end up getting unemployed, being unemployed. But I'm going to stand up and fight against this insanity because in standing up against this insanity, I feel like someone. I feel a sense of uh, sense of uh, self determination, a sense of autonomy, which I which I which I'm lacking in terms of playing the game that the capitalists set up set, set up for us to play. But this question that you asked, Brother African, I conclude with this: when you, when you talk about the fact that capitalism is a form of slavery, and keep in mind when we talk about the struggle between the the churches in in, in Europe and the the uh, and, and, the, and the landowners, uh, the struggle was over who was control the, the the labor. See, labor had too much control over in terms of you know how uh, labor would be produced 
and what they and what they would expect in terms of repayment. That was simply too much power. So what they did, ultimately, the land owners the land owners uh, won out, and they determined that in order to control labor, that we had to control fundamentally not only the cost in terms of what we give them for their labor, but even the conditions under which they work. And so you're absolutely right. We talk about the evolution of capitalism. You're talking about slavery, and I think what's happening is in the society. I think increasingly um, more and more people come to the realization that we are that we are enslaved. That comes to that realization. I think in France that people are at that point where they realize that damn, you know what? We've been slaves all the time, but slaves no more, and we're going to resist. We're going to fight. We're going to create a new a new political political social order. That has to happen throughout the world. And one of the things that Fidel Castro said to people repeatedly throughout the world, even we talk about world leaders, he said to them, "Listen, you must take your lumps." You must fight. You must fight the U.S. because you sitting there, you, you know, acquiescing, playing this game, you know, participating in your own oppression. It's gonna do nothing in terms of limiting this, this misery index uh, that that you and your population feel under under working under the guise of, of capitalism. So, in order to feel free, in order to be truly free, then you must stand together and fight this. You must take your lumps. But in taking your lumps, you feel like a man or you feel like a woman because you feel free. I think increasingly what's happening in this country is that increasingly more people are opting to you know what, uh, rather be free than be a slave. I think that that paradigm is essentially happening, and you see it all the time in terms, of particularly young people, in terms of their attitude toward capitalism, which is very anti-capitalist. And so they realize, you know, that you know, being a slave is not the future for them, and they're opting for different ways in terms of you know being themselves or legitimately to actually be free. To become, to become self-aware. And to be aware of one's surroundings and the situation that one is in, and it's a consciousness thing that when one realizes one is a slave and in power, wage slave system, then one can struggle and and become more human and self actualized uh, and. Uh, You want to be you want to be free and not just happy in a cage. And so, you know, it's a question of consciousness and developing one's total human capacity. The struggle is is, is self actualized and uh and is necessary in, in order to gain one's true humanity. One must struggle against the slave system. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Also, panelists, I want y'all to respond to this reality that was stated by this this terrorist, where many people call so-called founding father, but this terrorist named Thomas Jefferson. Was well, a statement I think speak to the issue of the illusion of inclusion in the society as country as it relates to our people. He stated that we're in the context of freedom. He stated that if a nation expects to be ignorant and free in the state of civilization, it expects what never was and what will never be. Let me read again. If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in the state of civilization, it expects what never was and will never be. Mm. 
I find that sort of ironic to the situation we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. We have a high population of people who are very ignorant. This country makes the masses ignorant, but give them the illusion that they are free. But if you are ignorant, you know, ignorant freedoms don't go together. You can't be free and be ignorant. Brother Kwame Kareem is always saying, you want to free, be free, you better know something. And I see this as the reality that we are living on the most capitalist system. That's what it does to the masses. But I'd like to just have your response to that statement. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I think that I think that in the context of capitalism, uh the system demands ignorance. Uh ignorance becomes extremely important in the context of the capitalist system. One of the things in America we talk about, we talk about the large expenditures when it comes to sports or entertainment and we talked about it earlier. And uh, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, because they spend an exorbitant amount of money for sports entertainment, the question becomes, why are you spending all this money on sports entertainment? Why not intellectual suits like um, math, science, literature? Why not spend more money on those kind of pursuits? Well, capitalism demands ignorance. Uh, it can't exist without ignorance. In fact, one of the reasons uh, when we talk about the rise of fascism in society, the reason why fascism can exist in any society is because of the level of ignorance that exists. Most political scientists will tell you about 40% of the population needs to be pro-fascist in order for fascism to exist in a society. Well, certainly in America, we're already at that threshold because when you talk about the evangelicals and you talk about poor white folks who are ill-educated, they clearly that threshold of 40% has been exceeded you know, for a long, long time. So we see that the likelihood of fascism you know, uh, elevating or increasing becomes exponentially true uh, given the reality that more than 40% of the population approves of fascist tactics. So clearly the ignorance is, is, is key in terms of in, in short injustice proliferate. Without the injustice, without the ignorance, you can't have the injustice because people understand it and people fight against it. But if they don't know it exists, but they're ignorant, then they embrace it. They acquiesce it. They justify all kinds of reasons uh, that why injustices exist. Uh, so that is something that capitalism uh, is, is is determined to uh, to um, to uh, to uh, induce in in in, in the minds of, of so many people, and without that, capitalism can't exist. I agree with that statement. Oh, go, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, brother. The mic No, I think I agree with that point. Oh, wholeheartedly, I think, uh, because um, you can't have a real democracy if you if people aren't educated and informed as to what's happening around them, and uh, and that's why you know uh, you know most countries that try to build socialism, one of the first things they do is to try to eradicate as much as possible illiteracy. As was done in the case of Cuba, as Venezuela has tried to do, because you can't have a real democracy if most of the people can't read and write and and, and understand what's going on around them. So that so uh, so so that 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 is is critical, and for capitalists to survive, it depends upon the people being ignorant. Capitalism requires us to be less than human because you know true humanity is is flourishing and, and uh is conscious and uh 
and aware of the surroundings and aware of the problems it faces. And, you know, capitalism tries to keep us dumbed down and ignorant and uh, and plays on the backwards feelings of people. And, and, <coughs> and so we we need to be educated. We need uh, awareness. We need literacy. We need to... We need a, a a program of action to uh, actualize ourselves and to be human totally. Thank you. It's a very interesting. Brother Moses raised a very interesting point. That is a question in terms of um, you know um, you know um, what is to be human in the context of capitalism. Uh, one of the things you, you stop and think about. You know, one of the things I get no pleasure from is exploring using somebody, you know, simply because I can. It doesn't make me a more human being. It makes me less of a human being to do that. But yet we have a system in place which says that you have an obligation, if not moral, politically, to exploit people who are, quote, unquote, weaker than you are. So you take advantage of the homeless. You have them sitting here in the hallways of Washington, D.C., holding your place, you know, for six to 12 hours to hold your place so they can get into some hearing so they can make a business deal, you know, with some congressperson. Uh, clearly, this mindset speaks values in terms of, you know, capitalism grappling with this question in terms of what is to be human. It seems ordinarily we would think that to be human is self-explanatory, that we, it's something that's innate. It's something that you just naturally do. But the more you understand capitalism in terms of its intent, in terms of creating something less than human, uh, it amazes me. Uh, that you would take pride in terms of the exploitation of people who you come across people who are homeless or people who are living sleeping in the cold, uh, you know, people who have nowhere to go, children who have access to food, and you feel good about that. That kind of schadenfreude, that kind of uh, view in terms of how human beings should behave, for me is problematic. I can't understand it. I can't understand it. And so when Michael Francis Chris Wells started talking about in terms of the origin of human beings, and pointing out these quirks in terms of Western thought, she has some legitimacy here, in my mind at least. Because I don't understand how any human being can feel good about being a human being sitting around watching those conditions where people are living like that. Because that says something about you. But the mere fact that you can do that and walk right over top of homeless people and call them names or spit on them or kick them or whatever, the mere fact that you can do that speaks to something fundamentally wrong with you as a human being. I think that we have to have a discussion, and we will have a discussion, because I know we started before around the question of Francis Cross Wells and of you and the question theory, and we can have that discussion again. I'm not going to do it now, but we're going to have that discussion again, because I think it's important that we have a discussion, because we have to analyze, we have to begin to look at Western behavior and ask ourselves the question, what the fuck are they thinking? Seriously, why? Why do you have a system in place to, 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 to denigrate to destroy human life. Why? What do you gain from that? What do you gain from that? Seriously, you get a few dollars. So what? So what? It doesn't make you more human to destroy humanity. It doesn't make you more human. It makes you less human. But anyway, we have that. We at some point we had a discussion, and I'll close with that, brother Africa. And just add along that thought, brother Haki. It doesn't make you human or more human to have a a, a resident, a home a 10,000 square feet with just two people in it, and you have 100,000 people don't have nowhere, and you find yourself, you know, like, you know, make make like that's a great accomplishment for you to have access to all this space and other people have none. I mean, I often wonder how do they, you know, 
how do they um validate that lifestyle at the expense of knowing that millions of us they have very, very little in terms of just being basic human needs in terms of that regard. All right, panelists, let's continue the discussion. We're waiting for our sister. We invited Sister Belinda Brown. She has a real interesting story of what's going on in the southern part of the United States. She should be coming on shortly, but while we're waiting for her, we'd like to just continue the discussion around this whole question of freedom and what it really means and try to get a better understanding because I think the better understanding we have of it Maybe we may be in a better position to create the necessary conditions to get our people to in, in, not only internalize it, but begin to act upon it. Uh, panelists, Brother Frederick Douglass made the statement. He stated that who will be free themselves must strike the blow. What does he mean by that? Who will be free themselves must strike the blow. Because freedom is something you take. Freedom is something you take. You know, the the oppressor is never gonna give you freedom. Uh, you have to demand it and take it. Uh, and so, you know, this is this is basically what he's saying. Thank you. Okay. I Hello, agree with you. that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, freedom okay. is a form of power. And uh, a power over, over the control of your own life. And power is something that, that that you have to assert or take. It's not something that someone gives you. And uh, so freedom is something that has to be be earned in an oppressive society. And uh, you know, and uh, and 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 it might be a life and death, death struggle against the oppressor. And I think in in order to gain that freedom, we have to have the correct ideological tools in place. We've got to have another way of thinking. See, a lot of us are imbued with a capitalist mindset because our education is controlled from the time we're able to walk up until throughout the course of our life. So if you're not actively engaged in resisting, and what it takes is a different set of ideas. And we have to view our people with a revolutionary ideology if we want to develop people that are going to fight against capitalism. Because the fight for freedom is a fight for power. And that's what we're engaged okay. in. Brother Hackey, your last response, and then what we're going to do, we're going to take a station break, and when we come back, I believe we see our sister Belinda. Belinda uh, Brown is on our line. We're going to bring her in, and she's going to share with us about some real interesting things that's going on in her community, in her world. So, Brother Hackey, your response, you can take a break, and then we're going to bring in our sister Belinda. Um, Go ahead, Brother Hackey, your response. Yeah, well, well, I think that this question in terms of struggle is paramount, particularly when it comes to African masses. Uh, One of the things we have is peculiar mindset in terms of the Catholics, which says that those things which are weak are essentially superfluous or, 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 or should be destroyed. And given that mindset to not to be active in terms of fighting for your freedom is to be, uh, is, 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 is to be tantamount to uh, um, setting up your, your own demise. So I think it's imperative that people understand that we live in a capitalist system and that we have no other choice but to resist. Because without resistance, then we're simply setting up our own death. So. I, that's my, my response to that, Brother Africa. 
right, Panthers, John, we are done. Uh, to the listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Moon. We are just finished our segment on what's going on in our world community. When we come back, we have a special invitation to our sister, Belinda Brown. She has a very unique um, history of struggle, and she's going to give us an update on what's going on in her world and community, something that is very important as it relates to the U.S. criminal justice system and our people. We're going to talk about that phenomenon when we come back in two minutes. You got to listen to Africa on the Move. to be on your show and all the traction and every excitement and everything that's 
um, happening around the very, I think, one of the most important causes that we're facing in the world today is our criminal justice system. Um, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. But I want everyone to know that we need help here in Louisiana. And we're asking for everyone. I'm pleading with everyone to come and stand with us on this very, very crucial cause and that um, we're saying that the unanimous is not enough. Unanimous is not enough. And for, for people that are listening that don't know what that is, here in the state of Louisiana, there was a unconstitutional racist Jim Crow law that was put in place to um, incarcerate African-American, especially when it came with black men, um, to put them in prison for, you know, slavery is what we're calling it, that we all know that prison is big money and that, you know, people are, you know, were, were forced to take pleas to things that they didn't do because they were threatened that if you don't take a plea, we're going to put you in front of an all-white jury and give you life. So just briefly, those are some of the atrocities and some of the sad, sick things that are going on here in Louisiana. But it's very necessary that we have this conversation, Brother Africa, and get all the help that we can possibly get and to shine the light on this darkness that's been taking place here in the state of Louisiana. Um, there is something that's about to happen here come March the 18th. There's going to be a trial, a hearing, um, in regards to a man um, by the name of Mr. Earl Victor. Mr. Earl Victor's case is, I would say, is the perfect case to expose the injustice that's been taking place in our criminal justice systems that is a disgrace. Uh, my blood is boiling, my passion is high, because I know we can win this one. We can literally get the victory for Mr. Victor. Thank you. Okay, so, Sister Belinda, for our listening audience who don't know nothing about the case and nothing about the concept of unanimous, we got plenty of time. I want you to take your time. Explain to us exactly what you mean by unanimous is not enough when it comes to a jury trial. Okay, let me read this to you. In November, last November of 2018, we made history here in Louisiana, you know, um, when the Amendment 2 passed. It required a unanimous jury on all, felono, uh, on all felony convictions in Louisiana. The law went into effect on January 1st, 2019. This means that if someone committed a crime on this date or afterwards, all 12 jurors on a jury must agree on the conviction of that person. If someone committed a crime before January 1st, but their trial date isn't until January 1st of 2019, unfortunately, they can still be convicted on a split jury, which is the 10-2. We, and, 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 and this is when I say 10-2. 10-2 is that this law was so 
racist and corrupt that they boldly came out and stated back in 1964 that this was to protect the white this is for to protect the white supremacists and to be able to put black keep black people in slavery, which we all are familiar with the 13th Amendment. And if you're not, you need to go read that amendment because that is the only constitutional law that affects the whole country. That if you become, um, if you become a a a um, uh, no, if you get in 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 prison, if you put be put in prison. You become a slave, okay? I want to take my time because I want people to understand that. That Constitution, which is the 13th Amendment, it says that that is the only way the state can declare that you are a slave is if you are incarcerated, okay, which is sickening. Um, we all know that slavery was supposed to have been, um, you know, do, done away with, but this law gives them the right to get free labor to put people to slave people in prison, which I have so many horror stories how people say that they was in prison for twenty eight years, they worked for seven seven cents a day, you know, and made people billionaires because now this day they doing everything in prison. They making cell phones, shoes, purses. Um, postcards, everything they're doing in prison now. So um, when they put this law in, this 10-2, this, this, this um, non-unanimous into in place was to protect that, to keep people in slavery, my brother. And this is is this is a, a, a I want to say a a injustice a misgrave of, of of injustice that we're going to have to stand up and say that we cannot tolerate this now that we have came into the knowledge of the scheme it was a scheme it was it was purposely done to us especially African American men so I I want to make that clear so what we're saying. Back in November of 2018, we were successful in uh, re legislating, rewriting this law and saying that this law was racist, it was unconstitutional, you know, it was racist back then, and, and we no longer want that law. So the people of Louisiana came out and voted 64% to have that law changed and taken off of our books. So, but they changed it, but listen, they, they still did not make it re retroactive for the, for the many people, which we have vetted over 2,000 people right now that are sitting on, on direct appeal that was convicted up under this 10-2, okay? We're saying that these people need to be let go free or they need to be given the opportunity to have a fair trial. Because just because we were successful in passing the law, you did not make it retroactive. And what about these people? What about these people that, that deserve to get um, a fair trial and that deserve to be let go free? And Mr. Victor is one of those persons because I was there. I was there when Mr. Victor had 12 jurors, Three of them was black, okay? And the judge, 
the corrupt, wicked, evil judge forced the jurors to go back into deliberation and told them that they better come out with a verdict. Because when they came out three to nine, it was a hung jury. But the judge forced them to go back in, so they came back out two to ten. And that gave them, that two to ten verdict gave them the judge the right to sentence Mr. Victor to life in prison. So the, 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 the thing about this is, is that I know for a fact Mr. Victor did not commit the crime. That's going to be proven somewhere down the line. It's two parts to this story that I'm trying to tell. But the truth of the matter is, is that what everybody needs to know is that that judge, okay, was so determined to lock Mr. Victor up and give him life in prison for something that she knew that he didn't do. But that was because it, she had to protect her own interests. And that would come out later, too. So I'm saying that this is how, this is how sickening and how horrifying this 10-2 um, law unconstitutional Jim Crow law that they had on the books here in Louisiana for over, for many, many decades. And that's the reason why we believe that Louisiana took the lead and being known as the most incarceration place in the world per capita. So we're saying now that although the law has been successfully passed, what about all the people that was convicted up under this racist, corrupt law? It was racist back then, and we're saying that it's racist now. And we want to do away with it and give these these people that are sitting in prison in these godforsaken hellhole jails across this state a chance for justice. And we believe that we can win that and be victorious. Now, the truth is, is that they don't intend to let these people go. We know that because it's all about money. If you do the math, it's $100 a day, okay? It's $100 a day. So if you got 2,000 people that's sitting on direct appeal that stand a chance to be let go free, that's $200,000 a day. So some of these people have life. Now, if you do the math, you already know that this is going to create um, a ruckus and it's, it's, it's going to, um, you know, raise some serious antennas on some people because we're talking about economics. You know, it's not all about race, racism. It's about the money. And if you follow the money, you will find the corruption. And that's what we're dealing with here in Louisiana, my brother. Okay, so you listen calling callers. You listen to Africa on the Move. If you have any comments or questions, please dial in at 323-679-0841 and hit 1, and we'll acknowledge your last number. Sister Belinda, for those who don't know about who is Mr. Mr. Victor, can you mm-hmm. humanize him for us? Can you tell him about his family, how his family was impact, and even the process that they used to in, in, incarcerate him? I found your story right. the other night very interesting and compelling, and I think the rest of the world, all of the world, need to know. So would you go down and first humanize who who he, who he was, talk about his families and how they were impacted, 
and also talk about the process that they went to victimize him in terms of falsely accusing him of doing something he didn't do. So tell that story to our listening audience. Thank you, my brother, for giving me the opportunity to share. You know, I'm going to tell you, I really get, um, you know, teared up when I talk about Mr. Victor because I have had the opportunity to meet him, his wife, his children. And um, Mr. Victor was a a, a prominent businessman in St. John the Baptist Parish. And it's right on the outside of the West Bank of New Orleans. And in this area, he owned over 300 acres of land. And he was in the process of developing that land and bringing a corridor that would be that would probably look like downtown Atlanta on the other side of New Orleans. Okay, and Mr. Victor was being very successful in his um, in his quest to um, bring about you know um, an economic um, base for for African Americans for for that little hub area where it would it would probably literally had changed the whole state of Louisiana. He had um been very successful because you know with his um you know his intelligence and his, knowing his rights and and his connections with the um New Orleans Saints players, he had um the, you know established a relationship with over 18 of the Saints players and they all had agreed to sign on to Mr. Victor's um, project that he was going to be calling. It was the um, Praise Plaza, and it was, you know, just, a, um, I want to say, a beautiful development. I have the chance to look at the um, the blueprint and everything for it. And that, and in that development, he was going to have, like, a gated community where he was going to build million-dollar homes for the Saints players. And, um, you know, his home was also... Um, one of the beautiful homes that was going to be a part of that little gated community. And, um, but, you know, because this man was fearless and he knew his rights, um, he would walk into the meetings with the bank presidents and the city council and, you know, all of these people, and they had to, you know, uh, you know, they had to um, basically listen to him. They didn't have a choice not to listen to him. But when he spoke, he knew what he was talking about. So if they tried to pull any shenanigans, you know, like they they wanted to, like, you know, um, come up with all their new rules in the middle of the games when it comes to zoning and all of this stuff. But Mr. Victor, you know, he knew his stuff. So anyhow, um, he was not. Um, he was not a part of their plan. All right. Um, mm-hmm. Mr. Taylor can tell that story best, but when um, Mr. Victor had the tragedy with his seven-year-old son M.L. that was um, um, basically had a disease that's called asthma, okay, that was undetected at the time. And he, Mr. Victor had 13 boys. Let me bring this point out because this is a very important point. Mr. Victor was a, um, a part of this development was going to be a beautiful church 
because him and his wife, you know, I have a CD that they made like gospel music and, um, you know, him and his wife, they sung and ministered and everything together. And they had 13 boys. His first wife died of cancer and his, and, and he had six boys by that wife. And then his second wife that he married had five boys. And in that union of marriage, they had two more boys and, that gave him 13 boys, and these boys, I have had the opportunity to meet his older boys, Mr. Victor's boys, and they were, I'm, talk, I'm telling you, these boys are, I mean, just the ideal children that you would want to see grow up and be um, a, um, like you say, the future generation that would really be a a, a, a um, awesome example for what children should be. And that's the way Mr. Victor raised his boys. They were very intelligent, very humble, very well-mannered. And, um, you know, when I think about it, it's, it's sickening and it's sad how they came in and totally ripped this family apart. They adopted Mr. Victor's children out before he was even convicted of anything. They took two of his children. Now, mind me, his his, his mother, you know, uh, sisters, brothers, auntie, uncles, anybody could have got these children. But they took their children and adopted them, took them way to New York, where this person didn't even have a clue who Mr. Victor and his wife w- was, okay? But anyhow... This happened before they were convicted of anything. Now, um, because Mr. Victor was a multimillionaire in that area on his way to being a billionaire, um, these people were, were out to get him by any means, okay? He drove the Hummer, you know, the Hummer vehicle. I think it's like, a, a if, if not an $80,000, $100,000 vehicle. You know, he drove that Hummer vehicle his wife had. A um a navigator, you know they had beautiful cars, beautiful homes, you know children successful, doing well, you know no problems, never been convicted or in trouble for anything, not even a parking ticket, okay. But it came down to that this tragedy they took his tragedy, the death of his son, and made it a nightmare. You know I know the whole story about from beginning to end about what happened to ML. When he took his son to the hospital, the child was still alive, okay? Because the hospital want to go through all of that red tape. See, I got to bring this out because this didn't happen to me before. They want to go through all of that red tape because, you know, um, who going to pay for it? Who going to sign the dotted line? Who? What insurance you have? What this, what that? And in the meantime, Mr. Victor was trying to, you know, you know, basically hostile with them saying, go ahead, tend to my child. I will take care of all of that. I'm responsible for any bills or anything that need to be, you know, taken care of. You know, please get him out of here and go ahead and, and see to him. But in the meantime, because they want all this information, the child dies. Would you believe they arrested that man right there at the hospital right then and there? They arrested him for for, for first-degree murder? Mm-hmm. So that story, um, after, I, I want to say after over a hundred and some court appearance, in and out of court, all of his money, 
exhausting all of his funds. They took everything away from him, his bank account. They, they, they shoved his house down to a concrete slab. I got pictures of that. Okay, they took all of his possessions away from him. And then the judge dismissed the case based on the autopsy report that there was no murder committed, that the child died from a fixation, asthma attack. Judge Jasmine said, now, based on the, on the autopsy, based on everything, we do not have a homicide here. The victims are free to go. So, unless y'all come back with something else, this man and his wife is free to go. But, listen, now this is the niche. The very next day, in the meantime, Mr. Victor then already hit them because he hadn't been convicted of anything. He filed a 1983 civil action. He didn't name everybody in the book from the doctors to the nurses to the state to the to the judge to the prosecutor to everybody in a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. The banks, everybody, he didn't name them all. Because now he's saying y'all fit to, y'all fit to pay me for what y'all have done. So the next day the DA they bring they bring second degree murder charges and call Mr. Victor in and tells him if you don't if you take these this lawsuit away, we won't bring these charges. If you drop this the nineteen eighty three civil actions against everybody, we won't bring these second degree murder charges against you. And Mr. Victor told them no. Um, And he left. And him and his wife. Trying to get outside of Louisiana to go get some more help. To go get some help so he can come back and lawyer up. To fight them. They put him on the world's most wanted. As a fugitive. Him and his wife. America's most wanted. They arrested him. Now, mind me, he already had a $2 million bond set up there. He don't even know what happened to that money. He ain't never got that back. And it came down to Mr. Victor defending him and his, defending himself and his wife in a courtroom because the judge would not allow the lawyer that's how I got involved because Mr. Victor, all of his resources and everything, in some kind of way, he found me online and called me and asked me to help him get a lawyer. And when I was able to find him a lawyer at the last minute, he was getting ready to go to trial. And the lawyer appeared in court that day and asked the judge for a continuance. And the judge told him, We're going to trial today, and I would advise you, if you're not ready, you need to to, um, file a motion and recuse yourself. 
because at that time, the lawyer had never even had a chance to meet Mr. Victor. He had spoken to him on the phone, but had not sat down with him in person. And he asked the judge for seven days to give him seven days to meet Mr. Victor and his wife so that he can prepare to go to trial and do the jury selection. The judge told him, I advise you to file a motion and recuse yourself because we're going to trial right now here today. And that's what she did. Now, mind me, that judge, this is what everybody needs to know. The first judge totally dismissed the case, threw it out, quashed it, everything. They reallotted it into the, another judge's courtroom. It's only three judges in that whole little district, in that little hellhole courthouse. The judge was the wife of the the second most prominent businessman that was white in the parish. Mary Hotel Backnell. Daniel Backnell was her husband that was the second most prominent businessman in St. John the Baptist Parish. Probably on his end, they had the white end and they had the black end. Mr. Victor was developing the black end, and Mr. Victor was going to bring about the connection and unify the communities and bring, you know, the the um, the the, Af- the black people over the, the river. And if you ever go out there, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. They was determined to put Mr. Victor in Angola. And before Mr. Victor was convicted and sentenced to anything, they shipped that man to Angola. And he called me from Angola. And he said, "Miss Brown, what am I doing in Angola? I have not been convicted of anything. I haven't been sentenced. They sent him to Angola before he was sentenced. It get worse than that, my brothers. Every time I think about this nightmare that these his boys, his children, had to suffer and go through, it would make you literally want to throw up. That's how sick it is. Uh, Sister Belinda, can you tell, listen, audience, and Mr. Taylor? If you listen to the program, can you please hit one so I can bring you in? Mr. Taylor, if you're listening to the program, please hit one so I can bring you in. But, Sister Belinda, in terms of the history of the death certificate, can you talk a little bit about that? The 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 autopsy, um, you, you know, this, this is what you need to know. These people, the, the autopsy, and Mr. Taylor have all that, but the autopsy was was determined that this child died from fixation, that there mm-hmm. was no homicide. Okay. The state coroner, the coroner, um, that came back and changed it. Now, if you know during Katrina, 
the coroner was so corrupt in New Orleans that there was a shooting on the Dan Zindrel Bridge that where Henry Glover, okay, he was shot and killed and his head was cut off and burnt inside of a car. And they still, and the coroner could not determine whether or not that was a homicide. So this is how corrupt these people, and the man's head still missing, the family still don't know where his head at, but that coroner could not determine whether or not that was a homicide. The same coroner that is so corrupt that is no longer in office, and I think he didn't die now, but he was the one that went back in reverse because Mr. Victor had to have two, he had two autopsies done on his son. Two of them was done. Okay. Mm-hmm. He also had a expert that was, that, that came from outside. I don't, I don't, I don't remember where she came from. I think it was Atlanta or California or somewhere she came, flew in to testify in his case. They would not let her testify on, 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 on the, um, on the to authenticate the the death how to determine how this child died that what caused this child's death okay so everybody know that the child did not die from any type of trauma or abuse Okay, but they didn't care about that. They didn't even want his witnesses to testify and prove his expert witnesses to prove to determine the death, what caused the death. They didn't care. This is more, now this is the most, um, I want to say, atrocity that took place in Mr. Victor's case. It's when the judge appointed somebody to assist Mr. Victor that was not even a lawyer, that had never even met Mr. Victor before. That was my assistant. Mr. Kelly was my assistant that came with me, that worked with me in community activism and organizing. He did not know Mr. Victor. And she called him out and appointed this stranger, a stranger. Mr. Victor didn't know him. So, and then, worse than that, Mr. Victor had to go to court on Saturday. He got up and said, you know, by him being a reverend and everything, he said, that is against my, um, you know, religion, you honor. They laughed at him. They made a joke out of it. She said, you're going to show up tomorrow because we have in court. So they had court on a Saturday. And I'm trying to remember whether or not Mr. Victor, they, he sat inside the chambers while court was still going on. And so, before we... If Mr. Taylor, if Mr. Taylor is listening, my brother, I would love for him to come on and weigh in because yeah, we're trying to bring him in. We're trying to bring him in. I'm waiting for him to hit number one. I have numbers on the board, but I don't. 
really see a number. Um, if you can hit one, Mr. Taylor, we can identify you. Mr. Taylor, please hit one if you are listening to this program. While you're waiting to try to find Mr. Taylor, Belinda, I go into mm-hmm. this phone caller, but before I go to this phone caller, there was a real interesting uh, behavior in the courts where I was told that one of the lawyers would debar as re- as a result of trying to work with Mr. Um, Victor. Uh, can you just give us um, some history of, of that phenomenon? Well, well, you know, um, I can give you this history, and I'm pretty sure that the expert witness, you know, I would love to try to get in touch with her to get her on the phone to tell her story because okay. they basically, um, the expert witness went up, I mean, they seriously attacked her, you know, um, tried to, um, you know, pull her license and everything, you know, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and threatened her and everything and told her, you know, it was just bad. But um, the lawyer, one of the lawyers, I know Mr. Victor had um, had paid a, a substantial amount of money to. I'm talking hundreds and thousands of dollars. He he had the Saints players giving him money. He had the the um, the the the, um, the business owners. You know, everybody was standing with him and supporting him. And and Mr. Victor, okay, was not backing down. This mm-hmm. man was serious about fighting for his family and his life because he knew he was innocent. So he divvied out the money. He paid them the money. So one lawyer decided that if you don't give me no more money, because he know Mr. Victor got all these co- connections with all of these business people, and, you know, if you don't give me no more money, I'm going to put on my best dress suit, and I'm going to watch them shocker you and haul you off to Angola. Now, this mm. this this lawyer, I'm going to call his name. His name is Roy Burns. He is known as a crook, a straight-up crook that purposely sabotaged people's cases. And that's what he did to Mr. Victor because it was so bad when Mr. Victor got ready to represent himself in the courtroom, he needed his discovery. This man had all of his discovery and wouldn't even give it to him. Mr. Victor filed a motion for the judge to order this man to give him his file. The man wouldn't even give him his file. Mr. Victor had to piece his case together with and, and, and this man knew he had Mr. Victor's file and wouldn't give it to him. Wow. Wow, what can we say? So-called justice in the American system. Hey, Sister Belinda, what we're going to do right now, we have some people on the line that have been waiting to want to um, talk to you. We're going to bring in that first caller. Mr. Taylor, if you're on the line again, please hit one so we can identify, identify you. So we're going to take this first caller, Belinda. Uh, call three eight zero two. I believe that's my sister Empress. Three eight zero two. Welcome yes. to Africa on the Moon. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Greetings to everyone. Greetings. How are you, How you brother Africa? Hey, sister Belinda. Hey, brother Hakeem. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy you on the. I'm happy you on the line, <laughs> sister Empress. <laughs> yeah, we got a couple of people tuning in. They just texted me and told me they listen in. Hey, Dr. E. Uh, Got some Sister Gabrielle. They all tuning in as well. 
Um, I, I just wanted to add, and, and Sister Belinda, you're doing a wonderful job in, in putting out this information. And again, I want to reiterate uh, two things. One, that this judge, so-called judge, uh, you know, this is beyond a conflict of interest given the fact that her husband was the mm-hmm. other contractor. Uh, that's kind of like a competitive field. We all know mm-hmm. that, and definitely ain't many black people in it. And so we can only, you know, surmise that being in some place like Louisiana, oh, my gosh. But um, mm-hmm. that has to be pointed out. Um, the other thing I think is very important that we understand that sometimes, unfortunately, it takes one case or one person or one situation to bring forward a whole slew of other stuff. And we've seen that happen before where, you know, one case uh, helped to bring the light on, you know, so, so many other situations happening. Uh, for example, with Mumia Abu-Jamal, you know, once he had hepatitis C, was dying, uh, almost dead, um, because, you know, he has such a, a strong support base, people, you know, literally came to his aid all across the world and as a result, you know, forced this government to make certain that he was able to get the medication that he desperately needed. But from that, it pointed out the thousands that are incarcerated that also have hepatitis C that are dying, and and no one was advocating for them. And and Mm. ultimately, the Concerned Family and Friends were able now, at least for the state of Pennsylvania, all inmates, all so-called inmates, are getting this medication that has been proven to literally cure hepatitis C. So my point is that it's really important that we do understand struggle from a standpoint where in this system, unfortunately, there are sacrifices that are put in our forth, before us, and we have to see that clearly and know that there's a situation that's going to shed light on a lot of other stuff. And by fighting mm, yes. that one situation, it will help so many others because it's all connected. And I kind of think that this is what's going on. Lastly, I want to point out, and you all know i got to do this, there is a Mrs. Victor, okay, who is now <laughs> facing 40 years. And while I do not hear a lot about her, and, and I don't expect to right now, I want to make it very clear that you will. There's no way we're going to talk about one part of this case and not talk about the fact that the mother <laughs> is also incarcerated and mm-hmm. has, from what I understand, you know, been given this, this other slant now of being incompetent, which for me indicates she even needs a little more support from our women in particular in addressing this issue on her behalf. So there's two things going on here. One that we know that has to be dealt with in terms of Mr. Victor, but I'm saying again, as black women, the one thing I found out about other females is they get busy and they do stuff when it comes to their people. I dare say when it comes to black women, where are we standing when it comes to our women? I want to talk a little bit about Miss Victor, um, if you allow me, um, Brother Africa. Um, you know, and you're right, Sister Empress, you know, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I really get um, emotional when I think about the fact that this, this woman was, um, you know, she was suffering from inside out 
Um, she mm-hmm. did not even she... get the opportunity to bury her child. She don't even know where her child is buried at. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, she lost her mind. I really believe that she had a, throughout the process, she had, you know, a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. They was coming at her from all angles. And, and and I'm talking about not just a dead child. You know, she at that time, she had two twin boys that were, um, I think they was probably like about age two then, mm-hmm. that was snatched away from her. Okay. Um, she was given 40 years. She got on the stand and she broke down on the witness stand. Mm-hmm. She testified against herself. No, and wow. she, she, oh God, it's so hard. It was so hard. She was willing to take responsibility for whatever. She said, for whatever. And, and, because she was the one minutes. that was at home. She was at home. Mr. Victor was at work. And she felt like, you know, she because she was the one that was at home with the children at right. the time. She felt like she was responsible for whatever happened. Right. And, right. um, but when she called Mr. Victor, you know, she said, I, I think we need to get the baby to the hospital. So he came right away from work and they got the baby to the hospital. And the baby was still living when they got the baby to the hospital. Mm-hmm. But to see her, I would, this would never leave my mind. It would never leave my vision to see her on that witness stand and break down the way she did and um, testify you know, against herself just mm-hmm. so that she can let them know that I take responsibility for whatever happened. I didn't kill my child. I didn't beat my child. I didn't do nothing. Yes, I was the one that would chastise them, that would punish them, but I did not kill my child. And then to hear Mr. Victor's sons, the brothers, the siblings get up and testify in this trial about what happened and what they know that happened that their parents didn't do this and see those kids be drugged out the courtroom crying and tears broke down for the judge to threaten to put me in jail the judge threatened to put me in jail I'm in the courtroom because the judge said I want you to get out the courtroom because I was comforting those children it was so hard. It was so hard for me. I told the judge, I said, look at here, you can lock me up. But I'm not leaving this courtroom. The court belongs to the people and you're not if you can you can put me in jail right now and I drop my coat, I drop my purse, I dropped everything and say you can lock me up right now, but you're not going to put me out of this courtroom. The judge recessed the court. And when she recessed the court, she got the message that I wasn't going anywhere. So, Sister Belinda, I want you to just take a deep breath for a moment. I'm going to turn it back over 
to Brother Africa and Brother Haki, but uh, you see, it's important, family, as you all can tell, that you really can get a gist of the impact of this whole thing. Uh, and, of course, you still haven't, but at least I think, perhaps, unfortunately, you are now able to really kind of get a better gist from an entire family perspective. And, and it's so important as a community that that we see it in that dynamic, in this day and age in particular, um, that this is affecting a family, an entire family, an entire community, an entire mm-hmm. people. And, and you know, I, I didn't mean to push a button with Sister Belinda, but on the other hand, um, you know, in a way, perhaps that needed to be said and, and exemplified because that's how serious this thing is. And, uh, yes. and Sister Belinda, thank you so very, very much. Um, yeah, you know, I have to. I have indicated. to. I, I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell you. I have to. I've been suppressing. <laughs> and suppressing yeah. this because I have to fight. I have to fight for this family. I right. have to fight. Right. So I have Sister to suppress Belinda. it, and I don't mean to break down like that. But you, you, you. Um, Sister Belinda. Yes, sir. Sister Belinda, can we yes, use this for brother. a few minutes? I'm going to take a station break, and when I come back. We have some panelists who would like to say some things to you. And, um, you know, I just want to give you a few minutes, go and get you some water or something, and we'll be back by in two minutes. Okay? Okay, thank you. Thank you, my brother. All right. All right. We'll be right back in two minutes. You listen to Africa on the Move. And, like you just heard our sister Belinda talk about the injustices that's going on to our people down in Louisiana and throughout the world. And we're going to see how we can come down to help this sister but become even more organized and make sure we can create an institution that will be in a position to protect our people wherever they may face injustice. So we're going to pause for this cause, and we'll be right back and listen to Africa on the Moon. What's up? Some That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mossadegh. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist. Gaza Strip was getting bomb. Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame? When they dropped the bomb, louder than planes. Using depleted uranium. Babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal. Ain't nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck who's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man. Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face. He said, fuck it. 
gate, this ain't living. discontinue court. 
so that they wouldn't have any, you know. So these were the type of um, atrocities that was taking place to keep the people out of the, the public court. Sir, I need some real people. We need real people. If it ever been anything that can shine the light, like Sister Empress just said, it's time to shine the light on this darkness. Because here in Louisiana, they are literally lynching people in the courtroom. Yeah, so what I'm going to need, I'm, I'm going to be in touch with you uh, tomorrow. Um, what I'm going to need is um, addresses and names of um, the media there and there in Louisiana in your section. And I'm going to, uh, I want to uh, look into um, um, possibly some individuals in Washington, D.C. I could write in terms of detail in this case, but I'm going to need your help. So if you're okay with that, I'll be in touch with you tomorrow. Yes, I really want you to do that because, see, we, we you know, we was not successful at all with trying to get the our, our, the, the story told that was needed to be told. The media here, we could not trust them because we, you know, I'm going to tell you, we found out that they were more so in cahoots with the powers that be because some of the things that they did and some of the information that they put out was not true. So, and and when I had the media, when I took a lady that I felt like I can trust in the courtroom with me, do you know the judge put a gag order on her and she was with Fox News? The judge threatened to put a gag order on her, told her that she she could not report anything that was going on in that courtroom, and I can call her up right now, and she would tell you. She said, oh, Belinda, they can't do that. I said, no, honey, you are the media. They cannot do that. She said, well, she just did put a gag order on me. Told her to wow. stand up in the courtroom and told her she was with Fox News. Threw her up in the courtroom, called her to the bench, and told her she had a gag order on her. And did the same thing to me and told me I'm not allowed to talk to the news. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's, a, it's unbelievable. It's, it's really unbelievable. It's really 18th century stuff. But anyway, I've been talking to you It's true, it's true my stuff. brother. It is the truth. I was there. I was there, and I got witness, I got videotapes, I got pictures, I got everything. I was there. Mr. Taylor was there. Mr. Taylor, I don't even think, they kept kept all of Mr. Dicta's witnesses outside of the courtroom. You know, that's what they did. So the people that he really, there was more people on the outside of the courtroom than they were on the inside of the courtroom. Yeah, no, I I believe you. I'm just saying that uh, it's 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 in the 21st century. It's amazing that these kind of things still go on, and uh, I know that Louis is going to a great uh, deal of uh, investment in the penal system. So a lot of their income mm-hmm. comes from the penal system. As a matter of fact, I think they're number one in the country in terms of you know real revenues from the penal penal college that they have in Louisiana. So I'm well aware of the injustice that exists in Louisiana. But uh, definitely, I'll be in touch with you tomorrow, and I get all the information I need, and we, we'll, we'll, you know, and um, I'll, I'll get the work. We'll get the work. 
Okay, my brother, I I really appreciate you and thank thank you so much. I thank God. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Brother Africa, I just want to say, you know, I really appreciate your show and that. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm I'm here. Hello? Hello, I'm here. Yes. Yes, this is uh this is Anthony. I'm one of the panelists on the program. Mm-hmm. And I wanna I wanna express my condolences also on the uh on, on the passing of uh, Mr. Victor's uh, son. Mm-hmm. And um uh let's see and um uh, you know and uh you know, and you know, please let people know how you know what what's uh you know how how uh, how people can support you in your efforts to to get the word out and also to uh you know uh help the Victor family out, you know because mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. I had not heard of this until tonight, mm-hmm. and uh so i I, I think it's uh, very important that the word gets out far and wide. You know about mm. this because uh, you know a lot of people are under uh, are under the myth that uh, that uh, you know this is the land of the free and and that uh, and that the U.S. is so democratic and everything and um, you know and uh, you know and and I think this these, this needs to get out you know mm. to everybody and let them know that uh, you know the injustices that uh, that 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 await Africans especially. If they choose to stand up, you know, mm-hmm. and assert their uh, their rights, right? But well, this and, is the case that I believe that it's going to open up a whole big old new, you know, era of direction of exposing the the, the corrupt criminal justice system. And in the, in the, when Mr. Victor spells out everything that transpired in his case, you know, there was numerous, numerous of 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 um you know, things that went wrong in his case. I mean, just all of, you know, he listed all of the amendments that they, you know, violated everything in his case. So, um, my brother, I'm asking people, I have a website. I'm asking people to, you know, to support the cause, to help join up with us. You know, we we are a civil rights organization, and I just don't focus on, you know, one case, you know, we have, multiple cases but Mr. Victor's case tops them all okay but we have multiple cases where injustice have have transpired but they, they the only reason why Mr. Victor case tops them all because I was there I was there every single day okay so you know, even when I think a couple of times I was sick I I you know I couldn't even hardly sit in the courtroom I was physically sick but I I made it my business not to miss a day. Mm-hmm. So I'm just asking people to join up with us and support the effort because I believe that Louisiana can take the lead and shine the light on, you know, and, and literally, you know, bring the change that's going to be necessary for the betterment of all people. I believe that. Right. I have a question for you, Belinda, if you don't mind me asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, does St. John's Parish have like a, a local jail? Because normally people that aren't 
that aren't even convicted, if they're awaiting trial, they're normally in a, and I guess would be a, the equivalent of a county jail in most states. I yes, mean, is Angola a state penitentiary, if I'm not mistaken? Right, Angola is the state penitentiary, but um, yeah, St. John the Baptist do have a little, um, you know, a little hellhole jail, a parish jail, okay? But uh, when I went, I'm going to tell you, the parish jail, all of that stuff was, I'm going to tell you, it was so obvious that all these people were connected, if not related to each other. I'm talking about from the DA's office to the to the sheriff to the to the uh, police officers to the to the clerk of courts all of them you know um, if if you just if you can just picture in your mind back up in the woods everybody knowing each other so when I went to the jail to visit Mr. Victor's wife I wanted to just see her and hold her hand and comfort her they wouldn't even let me in the jail because now they know that. I'm opposing, you know, you know, everything that they were doing to Mr. Victor and his family. So now they know who I am. They follow me in the town, following me out the town. That is terrible. You know, so, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, we, we need help. We need help. I'm, I am pleading for help. Real activists, real people that really know how serious this really is. Because what they did to them, it could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. So, um, I do have a website, you know, and um, and Lily, you can go on. Hold on before you give all the information. Let me get this one more panelist in. Then we want to share with the listening audience how they can help you, what they can do, and what what activities y'all are coming up uh, as relates to these matters. But let me go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like um, a situation where the white power structure is trying to keep black folk in their place, so to speak. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, somebody becomes successful, you know, it's, it's a threat to them. And, uh, you know, this seems to be the situation. Uh, um, I, you, you've been pretty um, good at explaining the situation, so I really don't want to drag it out. Uh, I'll let you give your website and et cetera. Thank you. Belinda, where you speak to our listening audience and the rest of the world on one, how they can help you, two, how can they get in contact with you, and basically talk to the people, talk to the world. What do you need right now? Well, well, my plea is for um, many people as we can possibly get here to come and stand with us. I believe that there is strength in numbers and there is power in numbers. And we need strength and we need the 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 um the strong united front to let you know whoever that um whatever opposition they need to know that we're standing in a unified effort 
not only expose all the injustices and all the, um, um, you know, the atrocities that took place in Mr. Victor's case, but to let them know that we cannot tolerate this in this America. We will not tolerate this type of treatment in our criminal justice system. I need people that would also donate to help us because right now, you know, the the anonymous is not enough campaign. We want to have rallies. We want to go to into every venue that we possibly can, you know, communities to educate our people that we're saying that um we want these over 2,000 people that are sitting in prison right now that, you know, that was convicted up under this racist, corrupt law. We want these people to either be let go free or given a fair trial. So uh, we want to be able to, to organize and mobilize people to come from outside to help us, you know, hotel expenses or, you know, or speakers or whatever we need to do. We've been trying to contact national, um, you know, um, speakers, actors, whoever, um, to come in here and help us because we realize that, um, you know, our universities and stuff, we're trying to engage and get them involved you know, venues and stuff like that, that we would be able to go in and have rallies and, and, and educate the people. That means a lot to us right now because we're saying that this is not going to go away and we're going to fight until they get it right. And and that's 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 basically it. Um, you know, we have, um, you know, um, Sister Empress with, you know, We Charge Gen- Genocide 21, you know, um, I feel like that's the only way we're going to be able to get a lot of attention and actually get the people engaged with some some uh, action. We need action now. We don't need no more talk. We need action. We need the people to rise up and shine the light on this darkness so that, you know, Mr. Victor been in prison for four years, him and his wife. You know, she got 40, he got life. He's in Angola. They constantly, you know, harassing him in prison. I constantly have to be calling there trying to, you know, find out where he's at, whether he's dead or alive, you know. Um, so these things are, are so important to me that we, we stay strong. And, and I feel like with my brothers, my ancestors, and everybody, you know, praying spiritually and naturally so that we would be strong to to. to to the you know to we get total victory total victory we're not going to settle for we're not going to settle for you know that or do we want total victory and liberation you know of this this whole corrupt thing and and we also believe that this can open up something that would be so big you know that would be a, a phenomenal movement that would change how people are being railroaded in these kangaroo courts across the country. And Belinda, P.O. Box website, how can they get in touch with you? How can they make any kind of donation? So how can we do those things? 
Okay, all donations is accepted in any amount. You just and I, what I really would like for you to do is just go to my website and click on the home page. And in the middle of the home page, it's got a donation button. Just click on that page and then help me build a database, too, because you can just leave your name and email address. So then that way I can keep everybody, you know, informed on what's going on. The rally is going to take place on March the 16th. Um, I, I should be able to have some of that information posted in an email or on, on, on my website here shortly. But my website address is www.la, stand for Louisiana, L-A, United, U-N-I-T-E-D, I, stand for Louisiana United International dot com. And a phone number where they can call and leave or get information to contact you. Yes. Um, I want you to call me. I'm going to give you my um, personal cell phone number and my office number. My office number is nine eight five um nine eight five five zero three zero six two six and my cell phone number is two six nine that's error code two six nine three six nine four seven five one and your website one more time for our listening audience l a for for Louisiana L A United U N I T E D I dot com and it stands for if you go and Google search it just search Louisiana United International it should pop right up in your search engine and you can go on the home page click on the donation button any donations and any amount is accepted we have not actually launched the campaign somebody was telling me that I should do a GoFundMe but what I really want to be able to do is um, help with our legal uh, you know legal defense funds for Mr. Victor you know help with arranging um, you know venues for rallies um, and also travel expenses and hotels you know, because we want people to come. More so than anything, we want people to come. We want this to be, you know, a national, um, you know, campaign, you know, nationwide. I don't care. You know, we're talking about, with Sister Empress, about going to the United Nations. I have so many cases. You know, we were successful in getting a lead district attorney indicted and sentenced to prison, you know, for a corrupt administration, and now we're looking to bring state charges against him for malicious prosecution, especially when it comes to a black man, okay? We didn't get no national news on that. We didn't get no uh, hardly no news on that. You know, they're trying to cover up, cover up, cover up here in Louisiana because they're corrupt. Mm-hmm. To the core. Well, Sister Belinda, uh, we know there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We'd like to just thank you for coming on this program and sharing with our listening audience on what is going on in your community. And we would do all that we can to support you. And we'd like to just let you know that anytime if you need something to get out, 
um, or anything that may kick off that the world needs to know, please consider us as a resource that you can appear upon. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you. Sister, um, the key to all of this, and you have already started, is to organize our people. Once we get properly organized, there will not be no force that we can't overcome. So, Sister, mm-hmm. again, we'd like, to, yes. we, we'd like to thank you. We'll stay in touch with you. And, um, they just keep struggling. So we thank you, sister. Thank you, my brother. I really appreciate you so much, and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you. You know, I I just want to put my arms and embrace you and let you know how much this means to us and our, you know, you know our people because it's time for us to to do something about this. It's, it can't go on anymore. Got to stop. Again my, again, my sister, we thank you and to our listening audience. Our theme tonight was protecting, projecting, and the use of power, part three. And you have been given a excellent example of how the system tried to protect itself, how it projects itself, and how to use power against the masses of our people. Until mm-hmm. next time, we invite you to join us next Sunday, same time, same place, from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we'd like to remind you that remember, Without information, you cannot think, and without organization, you cannot think clearly. Join mm-hmm. an organization that is doing something to try to liberate your people and humanity. Until next time, we will always strive to go forward, ever stop us never. You've been listening to Africa on the Move. Any comments or questions, you can email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. Until next time. Let's remember what Brother Michael left with us. And that message is... Michael, eles não ligam pra gente.